This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Recorded in front of a live audience. In the smoldering ruins of the United Kingdom. At Dragon Meat 2018. Where the Shantax overhead scream, Reesmog! Reesmog! Where roving packs of ripless GMs offer to run Burning Wheel for food. <laughs> Bandwidth and travel considerations brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We can't predict topics. But they just might include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Elliptony. Time travel. Cinema. Occultism. That weird article you forwarded us. And of course, food. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, the Big Red God, Goodnight Asathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two-get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans. Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. Uh, so, uh, as is customary in our non-live shows, we uh, thank individual uh, Patreon backers. Uh, are there Patreon backers in the house? Please stand up and be applauded. Be applauded. Be applauded by your peers. Without these generous humans, our podcast would have ceased to exist because we would have done the math on how much time it takes. <laughs> so... Uh, we have some index cards waiting on you uh, uh, for you on the table there if you uh, have questions that you would like to pose because, of course, we do a, a pure Q&A format for these shows. Uh, so just uh, write your questions on a card or on anything else legible and uh, bring it on up to the table. I also appreciate uh, those of you who have uh, chosen to wear fine Ken and Robin merch. Uh, which are uh, available at tpublic.com. Uh, uh, backslash Ken Robin. Backslash Ken Robin. Uh, but, of course, the other thing that we do customarily uh, at these live shows is the uh, famous nerd trope card supplied to us by uh, Calev Tate. We have a stack of nerd cards. We have a stack of trope cards. You can all attest. <laughs> Attention, Dragon Meat. The trade hall is going to be closing at 6.30. So you've got... Exactly, well, not exactly, but almost 30 minutes. Go and buy that last minute bargain. The trade hall is closing at 6.30. Go on. So you just heard something that our audio editor, Rob, is going to cut out. We have For a, many reasons. Yes. We have a nerd card stack. We have a trope card stack. As you can see, Ken, have we met this stack before? We have never met this stack, Have we met sir. this other stack They before? are strangers to they us. They are strangers to us. Yet, we're going to draw a nerd card, and that nerd card is Isaac Newton. Haven't we drawn him? <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. All right. And the trope card is Peloponnesian War. Ooh. That's strong. I feel like I'm missing Isaac Newton already. <laughs> all right. Uh, the Peloponnesian War, as you all know, is the war between Athens and Sparta. Athens uh, guided by Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and Sparta guided by the god of whatever being a giant jerk is. Uh, let's say Ares. And so the, uh, the, the, the two of them locked in battle between uh, the, these two visions of the future, a vision in which mankind is devoted only to war and a vision in which mankind is devoted only to the arts of democracy and wisdom and extorting other weaker states. <laughs> and obviously, uh, Queen Elizabeth, a uh, doughty student of history, would be interested in recapitulating those ancient struggles in her own uh, Glorianus kingdom. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, as we all know, oppressed uh, throughout uh, the world by the forces of her arch-nemesis, King Philip II of Spain. But... In an interesting twist, Queen Elizabeth reads to the end of the book. 
Uh, Thucydides stops, of course, in the middle because, uh, spoiler, he dies. Uh, Queen Elizabeth says, oh, look at that. Uh, Sparta won. Uh, they, uh, they beat the Athenians and they made them tear down their, uh, their uh, long walls uh, to the sound of flutes, for God's sake, which sounds like a magical ritual to me, if not to Queen Elizabeth. But when she asks John D., her beloved uh, wizardly counselor, he says, yeah, that's probably magic. So uh, she says, how do we, the naval power, the Athens, if you will, co-opt the power of Ares and leave Philip II a raffinant without any backing whatsoever? And that is where the uh, many missions of uh, the uh, of the Elizabethan Levant Company to the Near East uh, actually uh, have their basis. It's not to open up trade with the Levant. That is the cover story for Rubes. The secret missions to the Sublime Port in Constantinople, to the various uh, obscure hillocks in Syria, the Shirleys sent all the way out to Persia. And if you know anything about uh, Mr. Shirley and his descendants, you know that they are manifestly unsuitable for any role other than occult pirates because they were terrible diplomats. Uh, but, but their role is to find the secrets that Ares has left scattered around. And why would Ares be in Persia? Oh, I don't know. A little something called Alexander the Great. Ever hear of him? Oh, look at that. Once more, it's uh, the guy with the barbarian toughness overcoming the light of civilization, which was the Persian Empire at the time. So Queen Elizabeth is sending her uh, elite uh, archaeological pirate weirdo magicians out to the eastern Mediterranean while desperately trying to hold on against Philip II. And again, you're, say, you're saying to yourself, but Ken, Britain is the naval power. Spain is not. Oh, I don't know. You ever hear of something called the Spanish Armada? It's a giant fleet of ships. It is, in fact, not dissimilar to another giant fleet of ships assembled by Athens to go against what rich island? Oh, that's right, Syracuse. So, if you look at the fact that Queen Elizabeth has suckered Philip II into the power vacuum created by leaving the Athena role uh, blank, although uh, keep in mind that she takes the role of Astraea, the, the goddess of inspiration, thus leaving wisdom nullified. Uh, and no 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 number of uh, Jesuit the, scholars... The, the only time wisdom was ever nullified, ever nullified in, in England. In the history of England. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, that no, no no number of Jesuit scholars uh, pouring through Aztec codices and Maya codices can uh, can recapture that because of, of course over on the other side of things she's got uh, William Shakespeare and the Earl of Oxford and the Earl of Derby and the Earl of Rutland just a lot of earls uh, and they're all like uh, getting on William Shakespeare's nerves and giving him notes and he's just going bananas um, and, and he is creating the uh, strait in which. Inspiration is held captive, so uh, he's basically created a a net or a crown, if you will, uh, to hold um, uh, the the inspired section of Athena, leaving Philip II merely the dull paperwork part of Athena. And if you ever knew about Philip II, he's a master of the dull paperwork. So we have dull paperwork launching an armada against a rich. Uh, truculent island, and just like in 416 to 13 BC, it ends in a total disaster, thanks to the magics that had been uncovered uh, in Persia, the Levant, and the Sublime Port by the player characters, I mean Levant Company. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world 
falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? So we have some questions on index cards, and, and again, if you have other questions that you want to pose, bring them on up on uh, our cards or whatever legible thing that you have to uh, write on. Uh, we have index cards on the uh, white table here at the front, uh, and we have some uh, questions that have been uh, slipped to us earlier in the day, perhaps by people who had to like make trains or something. And uh, Ken, I'm going to start off by having you pose this question to me for what soon will become obvious reasons. All right. Simon English asks, Ken or Robin, in this case Robin, what, if any, stylistic changes in GMing style would you recommend for each of the four segments of the Yellow King role-playing game? Robin, uh, perhaps you'd like to address this as the author, creator, and inspiration of the Yellow King role-playing game. So, uh, first of all, the idea of shifting your GM style uh, subtly for each of these four things, you, you would be overthinking it. So, uh, <laughs> by, by, by not uh, doing uh, any of the things that I am about to suggest, you are still doing it right. This is uh, rejecting the call. If, yeah. For those of you following along in your dog-eared copy of Joseph Campbell. Uh, but, <laughs> if, if, if you wish to accept the call of this question, I would emphasize different things in the different settings. So, first of all, the Paris setting, uh, the Belle Epoque setting, where you're art students in Paris in 1895, uh, and that obviously suggests a sort of digress style where you go and meet all of the major figures of the period and so uh, you might want to allow your players a little more latitude to sort of go off in different directions because at the end of that direction is going to be Toulouse-Lautrec or Camille Flammarion or Madar or Marie Curie or whoever. Someone cool. Right. So that there's always somebody cool at the next table in the bar you're at and in a classic mystery format everybody you meet fits into the mystery. So you might want to uh, create more of this sense of a lived environment that people are in uh, that where things don't necessarily all connect up together so that you can Let go, things ramble out a little bit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, whereas uh, in the wars, which is the weird war setting in an alternate reality, uh, there you want to sort of, I think, get sort of more of an imagistic style where you're always making sure to convey different sensory information, whether that is, of course, the visuals of a war-ravaged landscape or the damp, the physical sensations of being in, engaged in a war, uh, the sense of uh, uh, hurt and pain that is both physical and emotional, uh, and uh, because it is a, a, a war landscape that is also supernatural, of course you can get crazy with the details. And so, for example, uh, the book gives you a sort of step in that direction with a section that is just little snippets of images that you can throw in as they move across the landscape. And then also, would you recommend uh, letting your inner killer DM out a little bit to play in the war? Maybe a few artillery barrages? Oh, there's lots of artillery barrages. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that was a playtest note. Have you noticed how many artillery barrages there are before the adventure? And my answer is yes, I have noticed that. Yeah, right. But, okay, I'll give you a few more uh, artillery barrages. points to <laughs> right. put into your characters to survive some of those. Um, for uh, Aftermath, which is the contemporary game uh, in a different reality where the Castain regime has ruled for 100 years and you're the ex-exurgents who've uh, knocked them out of power and are now trying to figure out how to rebuild society. That is a sort of a built-in sort of politics module that interfaces with the supernatural investigation part of the game and uh, that will enable, uh, that basically does your work for you in making that uh, feel different. And it uh, lets you do a little call and response type gaming that they do X and there's pre-existing guys who don't want X to happen and you can say that they oppose you on some right. level. And so that has a, is a game that has a building element uh, in it, which is another uh, different mode of play. So you're noticing all along that I've built different sub-modes of play into each of these segments. And then finally, and this is normal now, which is the uh, truly modern game, you may want to allow a little more uh, sort of satire and humor uh, to creep in, at least in the beginning, of course, to lull them into a false sense of security. <laughs> so that it becomes black humor. Exactly. Uh, so, so yeah. So the next question is from Alistair Dunbar, who asks, have either of you listened to Frampton Comes Alive recently? If so, is it any good? No, and I understand many people thought highly of it in 1978. I, I feel that the, like heroin, the vocoder comes back every 20 years. And right. I, 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 I don't need to 
experienced that more than I already Certainly have. Certainly not for eight hours. Yes. <laughs> uh, Ken. Amy asks, how would you incorporate the Teletubbies into a Cthulhu game? <laughs> well played, Amy. Robin, do you have thoughts on the Teletubbies? Uh, well, obviously, uh, it is something that absorbs the children, uh, at first, figuratively. <laughs> And uh, uh, so they're sitting there watching this, and you are kind of the uh, parents are in the thing. And so just television is kind of an ambient part of any uh, household. And so obviously it is uh, through the Teletubbies that the children are, are taken through the gate, obviously a manifestation of Yogg's the South. Uh, and uh, this is why uh, kids are... It's, it's sort of a little too harsh and, and too close to the bone to have the kids disappearing. But what if the kids are changing? What if their behavior is... Uh, causing them to flock together in schools and causing their eyes to glow and, uh, you know, what major, uh, you know, uh, other horror tropes can we bring in to uh, laminate with a bit of Cthulhu on top? So perhaps they all start to get a little blonder and their eyes start to get red and and, uh, and glow. And uh, so, so often when you're doing something that's an homage to an existing thing, uh, actually it's most fun, I think, to start off by immediately revealing what the homage is. Uh, instead of having that be the big reveal, be, be the big reveal. Right. the big reveal is, oh, you just plagiarized this thing already. You like, just ripped off the Teletubbies, <laughs> right? But if you do do it, at the, well, in this case, it's mixing two things together, right? right so yeah. you uh, you either start with the Teletubbies, and then it turns out to be Children of the Damned, or you start out with Children of the Damned, and then it turns right. out to be the Teletubbies. Exactly. Uh, the other possibility is that rather than have it be the sort of uh, standard uh, Village of the Damned horror trope situation that Robin presented, you could do another one uh, based on another excellent movie called Alien Raiders in which uh, you play the kids. You're doing maybe uh, Tales from the Loop or some other game, Little Fear, some game where you're playing little kids, and the Teletubbies are warning you about the mythos. And it's like, hey, kids, uh, there's a monster that lives in your closet, and here's how to kill it. And you have to sort of do things and kill monsters, and mom and dad do not understand. And you're like, Tinky Winky said that. No, that is not going to fly. And so you are alone in this paranoid world, and you have this oracular figures that appear to you and give you advice and help you help maybe keep you alive and you can you know uh do the little dance just like them and that'll keep the mythos away for as long as you can keep dancing oh i'm so tired um and <laughs> and that uh can sort of take the teletubbies out of the i don't have kids this is a terribly weird alienating thing and into what the teletubbies actually are which is a, a world of comfort and welcome to children while still making a hellish mythos world because that's what we're all here for after all steve dempsey asks why was it necessary to introduce phylloxera into first Britain in the 1850s and then the rest of Europe to, except for very tiny pockets, wipe out pure European vine stock? Well, uh, I think the answer lies in Dionysus cultism, Steve Dempsey. Uh, we've never met before. Um, I, I, I believe that uh, obviously the ancient European wine stock is going to have been uh, laid down in, in many cases in the south of France by Greek uh, settlers and then certainly by Romans who carried the, the vines uh, north into the Rhine Valley. So you have Greek and Romans planting vines. Obviously, they are devotees of Dionysus and or Bacchus. Uh, both of those gods do not bear close examination, so I recommend reading Karenyi on Dionysus. I don't know who the source on Bacchus is. I'm sure James Holloway does. Maybe he'll post it in the show notes. Anyway, um, uh, they are gods of madness. They are gods that when they come to your town, they destroy it. They overthrow the king. They make two moons appear in the sky. They're messed up. They're bad news. And at some point, some American vintner... Uh, because obviously it's an American who does it, because guess who's immune to phylloxera? It's California. Um, uh, or, of course, the, uh, the, the vintage in California that is immune is Zinfandel. So if you'd rather have a Magyar uh, 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 be your hero, have a Hungarian hero. Knock yourself out. But the larger point is they trip onto, they, they clue onto this Dionysian uh, build that, it, like a, a great wine, takes decades, centuries maybe to mature and the plot of Dionysus is rising and he's going to blow through the skin of the earth in, oh, let's say 1895 in Paris. Let's pick a place at random. And uh, in order to prevent that, to sort of cut off the head of the snake, uh, this mad Hungarian uh, bacteriologist or brilliant Californian biotician uh, uh, develops the phylloxera uh, uh, louse or whatever it is and lets it loose in Europe, a series of, of deployed, um, like probably uh, maiden ants and things that are coming out. Oh, I'd love to see the vineyards opening up her suitcase. Um, uh, that kind of thing. And then uh, that uh, knocks it out and Dionysus is beheaded and then he has to sort of graft his way back 
into the Zinfandel uh, uh, vine stock and into the California vine stock. And so his uh, plan may have been set back by as many as, uh, what would it be, 127 odd years, uh, just to pick a number at random. So uh, you've got a, a the, the ancient wine war that happened in the 1850s, 60s, 70s is now once more coming to a head. And probably that judgment of Paris where the, the French uh, wine experts were blasted and, and astonished to discover that California wine was as good or better than them is a shadow move in the opening of that. So you're going to have flashbacks back to the 60s and 70s that set you up for this grandiose uh, war of the wines. And now, what's going on? Argentina, Chile, Australia, countries that didn't even have wines back in the day, they're coming out. Whose side are they on, Robin? We don't know. Uh, it's, a, it's also a fascinating test of uh, national character, where all of Europe lost its, its vines, and everybody else said, we are willing to accept American vitality in order to still have wine. And England said, oh, I guess we just won't have wine then. <laughs> Well, it also helps to have been in the closing age, uh, closing years of the Little Ice Age. So the English wine crop was not what it once was. Uh, and will be again! <laughs> a anonymous questioner asks, what should one do with a sausage? And now we know why they're anonymous. <laughs> uh, so sausage is, is probably the, the finest ingredient you can add to a vegetarian dish. Yeah, uh, easily. Uh, so if you're trying to trick vegetables into being delicious, uh, and, of course, you're not actually trying to serve true vegetarians yeah, you, you wouldn't do that to a real vegetarian. No, that would be mean. Yeah. And they uh, have enough to suffer through. But uh, sausage in, in, in my cooking is best used as a flavoring agent for other things, so that rather than serving up an entire sausage for uh, each, each diner, I just take one sausage and I uh, pull the casing off and I crumble it up, and basically you've got uh, a sausage is just a meatball that someone has prepared into convenient casing for you. Uh, and so you, uh, I will then take that and break that apart and so if I'm roasting, for example, uh, uh, yams with uh, some uh, edamame and some onions uh, or uh, a tomato uh, tomato and, uh, and squash and, uh, and garlic or, or what have you, whatever uh, uh, vegetables you've decided to roast together in the, in the roast pan for an hour, uh, about uh, 20 minutes from the end, you take your crumbled bits of uh, whatever excitingly flavored sausage you've got and you crumble it over the, the topping and let all of the flavor and juice and spice get in and mix it all around. And uh, that, that's what I typically do with a sausage. And that's an excellent idea, kids. The other thing that sausage does is it plays super well with poultry. And not, and not chicken sausage. I'm not talking about that nonsense. But if you have, like, a proper sausage of pretty much any kind, you can uh, take your, your chicken apart, or uh, if you are lucky enough to have duck, you can take that apart and you you know, match the sausage to the thing. So if you're making chicken uh, cacciatore or chicken marsala, maybe you cut up an Italian sausage a little bit and you fry it up basically with the sofrito or with the whatever you're you're, you're putting that uh, a braise into. And then that sausage becomes, as Robin says, a flavoring agent as well as little medallions of delightfulness. Uh, you could do that with, um, uh, with with duck. That's basically cassoulet. Or you could do it with chicken for poor people cassoulet. Um, and uh, it put, you know, sausage, uh, poultry, and white beans with onions, a little garlic, that is amazing, just by itself. Yeah. That's a, an amazing dish. Uh, but but the, the fact that sausage plays so well with poultry, I think, is, is undersung, because everyone says, well, bangers and mash. That's a literally perfect meal. And you're right, but maybe have more. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric 
metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Askfagelm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Uh, the next question is, what eldritch invasion is Nickers the Cow the herald of? <laughs> I mean, the, when you looked at Nickers the Cow... Uh, and by the way, Canada, uncool. I, mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but Canada, when they had news that Australia had a super cow, Canada was like, well, we have a cow that's an inch bigger, which yeah. is normally only when we brag about our cows does Canada do that. So uncool, oh, man. Well, but look, we weren't bragging to the world that we had a giant cow. <laughs> but, but if, uh, if it you, turns if out. If you're bringing it up as a topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, actually. We didn't even think it was that interesting yeah. to have a giant cow. Whoa. But, and you know what? I'll bet in Texas they've got giant cows and they're like, well, whatever. You know. But my larger point is, uh, was it Snickers the cow? It's that? Nickers the Nickers cow. Nickers the cow. All right. That's it. Equally terrible name, Australia. Um, th- this this giant cow is, I believe, the 2018 filter, like on your Instagram, of the red heifer that heralds the end of the world. And I think that the red heifer that is going to be born to indicate that the war for Armageddon is going to begin, uh, the red heifer is, you know, you just go Australia on the red heifer and you get Nickers the cow and he's... He's white and black spots like, oh, it's just a cow. But, of course, he's freaking enormous. He's he's a, a tumor of a cow. Uh, and he's a steer, too. Yeah. yeah he's not a, a proper cow. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think that's what it is. I think it's just 2018 taking a perfectly good prop- prophecy of apocalypse and making a dank meme out of it. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's, uh, frankly, the cows are giving themselves away by... Uh, and, and, you know, they didn't decide to let knickers grow to the giant size that steers ordinarily grow to if you don't, you know, take them apart for their delicious uh, uh, segments. Right. Um, mm, segments. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because, of course, the cows, as is well known, are the drivers of human civilization, that they domesticated us in order that we would produce more cows in a more efficient way than cows could normally do on their own. Because cows are stupid. Cows are stupid. We would protect them from wolves. We would feed them. And uh, really, you know, they, I think the cows have to stop destroying the environment, frankly. Uh, and it's time they stepped up and took responsibility. But here, on the other side, Nickers is, is asserting... You know, cow dominance and superiority over over. You're uh, saying it's, it's, a, it's a cow long game, and Nickers is now rising. Well, I think the re- everybody else is like Nickers, cut this out, right? We the, there's a reason no right. cow allows itself to grow to giant size because then we will notice that it's the cows running human society and, right. and not the other way around because they're enormous, right? Uh, so uh, Nickers clearly not very bright. Uh, he's an Australian, so it descends from criminal cows. Yeah. Uh, uh, and is, he's just not playing by the rules. No. He's a, he's a, he's a good-looking rebel who lives by a cut of his own, so fortunately, that's uh, not a, uh, a recipe for charisma. What is the mythic significance of Blackwater? And I believe by Blackwater, our querent refers to the uh, mercenary organization run by the lovely and talented and possibly indicted by the time of this recording, <laughs> Eric Prince. Uh, and who is actually behind it, since it is apparently not the lovely and talented and possibly indicted at the time of this recording, Eric Prince. Robert? I don't know what you mean by talking about a sinister organization called Blackwater. There's just Academy it's, with, with an eye at with the an end. Eye. It's perfectly innocent. It's, Look, presumably... it's named after the fetid, haunted swamp we set it up near. Yes. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure it's just a, an organization that you know, teaches young children to have expensive whiteboards that are supplied by uh, uh, military contractors. The mythic significance of Blackwater, it's just, there's no mythic nature to Blackwater. They just like, here's who we are. We're going to call ourselves the, the Eviltons, but that, <laughs> but weirdly that was, you know, taken by a, a brand of margarine. Yeah, right. Uh, they're not even using it. Uh, it's just like Black Cube. It's like, uh, guys, come on, you know, we know that all of the tropes are turning real, but tone it down a bit. Now, I think that uh, you're, you're onto something, and what you're onto is the 
old uh, Masonic practice of making manifest that which should be hidden. And it's how you, basically, uh, it's what Nixon's people called the modified limited hangout. Right. Or in 2018, we call well, that uh, the speaking news. the subtext aloud. <laughs> right. The, 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 the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. And uh, it, it's when you've got uh, up your your, your uh, Masonic conspiracy or whatever it is, and you leave clues way out in the open, and it's either just to stunt on people because you're a bunch of uh, rich jerks, or it's from rit- a mystically ritual uh, a reason that you have to leave some number of clues out there so that a querent can tarot cards, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think that if you are looking at the black water, you are looking at the alchemical uh, negredo, right? You, you've got to be looking at the, the water of corruption, the putrefactio that is a necessary uh, involvement in an alchemical process. And so what he's got here is uh, if only there was some corruption that would be attached to them then this would really work this this parallel would sing right uh, but fortunately all their mercenary contracts are completely above board exactly yeah. um, everything they said to Congress totally true totally checks, out. checks out there's no contrary evidence that's held in detail by no. someone who's gonna that's drop crazy a whole bunch of talk. shoes. So anyway, um, I, I think that that's what it is it's it's an alchemical uh, mercenary unit and their job Hello, Dragon Meat. Um, if you're uh, still around, Ken and Rob are talking about stuff. Seven o'clock. And right now, the trade hall is closing. So thank you very much. If you're in the trade hall, we've been spending lots of money on all our lovely exhibitors. Well, they, they mentioned us, yeah. so so we'll leave it in. And especially since he said the and Robin part this yes, time, yes, said said the loud part loud. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So basically, they are they, they exist to carry out the necessary state of degrading before the Masonic uh, alchemical marriage can take place. So the uh, next question is: In a previous episode, you suggested that future generations of RPGs would be designed with streaming and actual play podcasting in mind. Uh, what features? might such a game have or lack? And this is from Patreon backer James Holloway. And I just have to, first of all, say that, gosh, we sure say a lot of smart-sounding things on the podcast. We are clever. I I didn't even remember that we said this one. Yeah. So, Ken. Uh, I think that one of the things that they uh, will wind up having is uh, that they will lack lengthy uh, calculation periods, either because it's going to be offloaded to an app or because you're just not going to be GURPSifying, championsifying your, well, we got to add windage and take away for this and do this and this and the other thing, because it's slow. It's dead air. No one wants to see that. What they want to see is people emoting about their dwarf. So ideally, you would have something that would mechanically support a little dwarf emoting, uh, and a lot of the indie games and uh, story games, of course, feed into that, where it's like the whole point of the scene is to have dwarf emoting, and then you move on, and everyone remembers the, the heartwarming moment that was. Uh, other games that are slightly more mechanically driven, I think, are going to maybe want a little more mechanical substrate so that they can, like story games, say this is the point at which uh, your dwarf is is mad and your elf is happy and you have to come together and, and make a scene out of that and there has to be some way to resolve what's going to happen because otherwise it just drags on forever and that um, uh, is it's, it's present currently in, in many social combat uh, systems, some of which are basically just regular combat systems with reskinned, others of them uh, more specifically tuned to whatever the setting is. So I think that those two things, mechanics to support uh, drama and uh, fewer mechanics to support the rest of the game, uh, are, would optimize toward uh, streaming and uh, and actual play. Yeah, I think that this is something that's actually happening sort of naturally and that no one has to be that calculated about it because the same people who are very excited about uh, actual play uh, podcasting and streaming are people who want the sort of more story game focused thing. So obviously the stuff that doesn't work uh, super well on in that format is anything really uh, super crunchy and mechanical. So that if you have to break away from the narrative for an hour where it's like, okay, now, okay, everybody check your strike ranks again. I'm going to reorder everybody in a strike rank. Okay, what was your statement of intent? Okay, now we're going to roll and, uh, okay, uh, you got hit in this particular location in the, anything that is, uh, that breaks it down and suddenly switches from, uh, story play into tactical play is something that people are going to have, uh, trouble making 
fun and exciting on uh, streaming. And so the very popular streaming shows, it's a lot of sort of drama system-like interaction, a lot of uh, uh, character back and forth, and then, but they're in a D&D world, and then, you know, they'll break for sort of a, a streamlined thing. So it's things that are about character and interaction and uh, images and stuff that you can uh, keep people immersed in the story with are, are going to uh, do well, whereas, you know, people are still going to be playing super crunchy games, but they're not going to be, you know, broadcasting the two-hour champions fight Although, you know, the sound of the 27 dice hitting the table is very satisfying. Yeah. So next up, uh, we have uh, from Chris Lackey, fellow podcaster Chris Lackey. Since we are moving into the Yuletide season, do you have a favorite ghost story, Christmas or otherwise? Ooh. Or as I like to call it, the Ghoultide season. <laughs> My favorite ghost story is probably uh, M.R. James... Uh, whistle and I'll come to you, which is nearly perfect, even though the reveal is one of the seemingly lamest reveals in the history of fiction. But the fact that M.R. James can make a bed sheet scary means M.R. James is working at a level you can't even conceive. It's like when, uh, you know, um, uh, who is it that used to break their guitar strings on purpose during shows? Paganini would do that to his violin. Same deal, right? Uh, it's just a level of mastery that, that's uh, unfathomable. I mean, you, and you can certainly pick probably half a dozen M.R. James stories are are that good or or, or better. Um, I mean, certainly uh, Mujina, the, the maybe one-page, page-and-a-half story by Lafcadio Hearn based on a Japanese legend, is probably just word-for-word word the most terrifying prose in English. It's not really a ghost story, though. But I, but I would give a shout-out to Mugina, certainly, if we're talking about uh, short stories. The thing about ghosts in particular is that uh, ghost stories are not often very highly developed narratives. You're talking about really short-form things. Because ghosts themselves uh, don't really develop. They're usually, you know, they're locked in time. They just repeat the whole thing. And if they're really a ghost, they don't do much. Right. At worst, the narrative is, I've heard there's a ghost. I think that I'm impervious to ghosts, so I'm going to go and check out the ghost. Ghost turns out to be worse than anticipated. You messed me up. I came back with white hair. Uh, that the whole point is there's sort of a recording. And so the things that I find creepiest about ghosts are just little moments that aren't really a narrative. And so really what is scary is when someone tells you a true ghost story of something that's really messed up and, you know, whether it's a real manifestation or something, I don't know. So just like uh, my... Uh, my dad doesn't listen to this podcast, so I, I and nor do any of his friends. I'm sure, so I can sort of <laughs> tell this one that he uh, knew someone in his circle of uh, oddball friends who was haunted, and he, what he w- was haunted by was a uh, a hole, a pit on this property that he owned up in northern Ontario, and uh, he didn't know what it was and why it was there, but he went up, and uh, there was this hole in, in his property, this sort of well, and it was cut into the ground with sort of eerie precision. And it wasn't even like, what is what is haunting this? There's something down there. There's something in the hole. It might be, is it aliens? Is it ghosts? Is it demons? Uh, he went to talk to his pastor, who was definitely, yeah, it's number three. That's demons. I have some familiarity with that. And my advice to you is sell the property and get away from the hole, uh, which is what he did. But one time, you know, he came down after having, you know, visited the property. And I, I think he just sold it off to somebody else. I don't know if he said warning, <laughs> scary, precise hole. Yes, um, property may in- include demons. Yes. Demon uh, hole. But then he comes back home. He's got, you know, he's uh, gotten rid of the property and comes back home. And then all of a sudden, uh, in his living room, one of the paintings in his living room has been taken and it's just gone askew. So the, you know, and that's the classic idea that, oh no, now, now the, the haunting is right. following you. By, by recognizing and perceiving it, you've basically become a dyad. Right. Now that's, uh, not at all Christmassy, uh, <laughs> and not at all really a story, right? It's an anecdote, and it's an anecdote that doesn't resolve. It's just a bunch of weird stuff where, you know, he investigated this a little, and an authority figure said, stop investigating it. And, and it, not being a role-playing game character, he did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily culminate. So, you know, it's like, uh, you know, misplaced picture that's slightly off angle. First of all, there's all sorts of rational explanations for how yeah. that could have been moved. But, you know, that weird, you know, you came back home and there it still was and your your door was slightly ajar. And, and because once you start thinking in that mode, anything can be the manifestation of, you know, whatever was in, in, in the oddly precise hole in the lot energy. In, in northern Ontario. Hole in the lot in northern Ontario. Yes. Alice Monroe story. Exactly, yes. Well, 
in the Alice Monroe version, there'd be two holes and they'd be married to each other. <laughs> right. And they'd, go and they'd to be the, making each other miserable. They'd be slowly making each other miserable and nothing would really happen. They would be haunted by each other. Yes, exactly. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The next question is, what is the most worrying RPG gimmick you've seen this year? Either because it's trying to summon a horrible nightmare, or because it's just bad. I mean, I have, I I guess, bonus me, I've been paying less attention to the games that are out this year than I normally do. I've been uh, head down in, in Vampire, and then I would head down in a lot of other stuff. So my my knowledge of what's out this year is not what it ought to be. I, that is because I think that uh, looking at other designs, especially new game designers who are coming into the field and doing things, is valuable for me as a, as a designer, even if I don't ever use their ideas. Just seeing where people's heads are at is, is fun stuff. I'm sometimes worried when people are reinventing a mechanic It's not a bad mechanic, but it's a mechanic that only produces one thing, and we know it. And so someone comes up and they say, "Uh, I've got a bidding system. And it's like, well, you recognize that this is going to create exactly this kind of story every time you play it, right? It's going to go up to climax and then end with whoever had the most. That's how that works. And they're like, but this is a story about courtly love. It's like, no, it's not. It's it's a bidding mechanic. That's what you have. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's not like bidding mechanics are bad, and they can often be very valuable if you're doing a game that is about that. Uh, and ideally, it's a one-shot, because you can't do it twice. But I see people who are doing these things, and it's not so much that they have a bad mechanic or a pernicious mechanic. It's like, it's like that. Hello, Dragon Meats. Our exhibitors love your money, but they love their bed even more right now. They want to pack up, so it's time to leave the trade hall. It it is now closed. Thank you very much for your custom. Thank you for enjoying the day. Come and enjoy the rest of the evening in the gaming hall. There's lots of games going on and the charity auction very shortly at 7 o'clock. And so I, I see that these um, uh, the, these people are designing games that are not going to do what they want to do, and I think that that's a shame. Yeah, first of all, on the list of things that I worry about, you know, at... at uh, uh, 1.30 at night when I've suddenly woken up again. Uh, RPG mechanics are not yes. on that list. And, and certainly other people's RPG uh, mechanics even farther down the list yes. for you. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And uh, the, the thing about bad role-playing ideas is that they solve. that's a self-correcting problem because they get to the table and the designer sees that they don't work and they don't work. Um, or they get house-ruled out of right. existence by the um, players. I think some of the things that a lot of the time that we perceive as bad are simply something that is popular that a lot of other people like and we don't. Um, so if, for example, you don't like Apocalypse World, it would be annoying to you that suddenly that is the uh, crunchiness that the story game crowd has suddenly seized on as their way to admit that they also enjoy crunchiness right. and even sometimes crunchy dungeonness. Right. Um, but that doesn't upset me either. I think it's natural that any, any art form that you have uh, things that sort of uh, catch fire for a while and people exhaust them and then they, they move on to the other territory. And that there's a hard and a soft form of, of everything. It's not just martial arts, right? It, right. People who, who uh, want to lean into the mechanical constraints and people who don't want to lean into that and that's just different kinds of play. Uh, so the, the question, the, the other part of this question then is what games are trying to summon a, a weird 
weird and terrible nightmare that everybody has to be frightened of. So I, I would think that everything would be fine and we're all perfectly well and good as long as nobody writes a role-playing game that's heavily based with uh, lavish production values and really cool rules about a book that drives you insane. Well, I mean, that would obviously... reality. That would be self-defeating. That would be extremely worrying. Right. Yeah. I certainly hope that... that because the, the, you, what you don't want is a game about a book that draws you in against your will with the compelling perfection of its prose to be written in compellingly perfect prose. Yeah. That would be terrible. Yeah, you can't I, have that. I don't know what kind of uh, scoundrel would do a, a thing like that, and I would strongly condemn any attempt to do anything. I, 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 would, I would be with you 100% like unless it had really cool stuff about Paris in 1895, then I might... Oh, well, yeah, if yeah. it has cool stuff about Paris in 1895, yeah. then, I, no. you know, it's a small price to pay. Yeah, for you know. the fundamental reordering of the universe right. into the uh, hellish uh, singularity that is Cartier. Right, especially if it had, uh, you know, sparkling social commentary in the fourth part. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like this yeah. historical, and I guess that would be okay if that just... And if it had cool war action, that'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then sort of a, another different level that allows us to attack political allegories from the side. And yeah, that'd be good stuff. Except, yeah. of course, that it would um, uh, uh, drive everyone who perceives it, plays it, or hears about it on a popular podcast uh, irretrievably mad. Oh, you're right. That's but probably not That cool. is a terrible idea now, yeah. that you, now that you mention it. So uh, we have some electronic questions here. Uh, if anybody has any other questions you want to bring up, uh, we still have time to tackle them. Uh, but the first one here is uh, for you, Ken. Yes. Dear Ken, I feel like I am constantly overshadowed by my brother Wilbur and also find my father somewhat distant and unknowable. What advice would you give me for getting out into the world? Sincerely, a devoted Patreon backer. Well, uh, my devoted Patreon backer, or um, uh, if I can abbreviate that, obviously, you know, everyone matures at different rates. Uh, some people just shoot up like weeds from age three. They're reading, they're deciphering Necronomicons, uh, they're uh, going to uh, closed collections. Some people just, you know, they hang out in the barn, and that's cool. And don't don't feel like you are not valued. Right. And in many ways, I would say maybe it's sometimes the one who just stays back in the barn and eats entire cows <laughs> that is really destined for great things. Right. And also, I, I would point out to our, our Patreon backer that there is a cow in Australia. Right. If you, if you like to eat whole cows. Yeah, that, that's really and, asking for it. And you want to, yeah, really, he's a jerk. Uh, like, yeah. there's a perfectly nice Canadian cow who he's trying to steal the thunder of. Um, and also, if you're going somewhere and it's your first time out in the world, and there's a possibility that you destroy everything you touch, it's just Australia. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, they, they probably couldn't tell. Right, exactly. Right. Oh, it's, it's a blasted hell spawn where everything is poisonous. Uh, what was that yesterday? Yeah, yeah. right. Same thing. Uh, so, yeah, I would, I would say uh, Patreon backer, go to uh, Australia. Go to Australia, eat the giant cow. Right. So we have some uh, leftover lightning round questions from uh, from the past, and the first one is from Patreon backer Andrew Miller. How would you do Death of Stalin as a game? Uh, oh man, you know, I you'd almost want to do it with a uh, with, with like Skullduggery, where it's all about you know saying something horrible. Yes, and, then the, and, and something horrible exquisitely written say. already for you, exactly. Perhaps by Armando Iannucci. <laughs> Ideally, yes. yes. Uh, Rich Fryer asks, what gaming innovation or idea did you think would revolutionize the industry, but has so far failed to ignite, Robin? So the obvious one is we're still waiting for the tablet game that works as a game engine. Right, the game you, the, you, the, your phone does all the gurpsing. Right, but since we said that six times already, right. um, the other thing that I thought would really catch on like crazy, but I was just totally wrong, uh, was uh, a number of years back, uh, somebody did a uh, Napoleonics game as a uh, customizable uh, deck so yeah. that instead of your miniatures, you had cards, and they had different... It was exceptions-based, and it uh, sort of changed the dynamic. It but it turns out that people looking for innovations and uh, Napoleonics players are completely separate on the Venn diagram. Yeah, the, the, it's, it's that Venn diagram where there's just one circle, and it says, see page 94 for other circle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So the next question is, uh, this is from Patreon backer Marshall Miller. What's the best way to make a game happen when you're not the right person to design it? Find the right person to design it and buy them a lot of drinks at a, con at a game convention. Right, right. or, or offer them money. Offer them money, yes. As, as a freelancer, um, if you're trying to hire me, I would say yes. uh, the drinks come after you give me the money. Right, yeah. but, but they're not, not there. 
Right. Yeah. They're, they're part of the mix. Right. And as Simon has discovered, occasionally giving your freelancer, buying uh, oysters for your freelancers creates an indebtedness that the amount of money you paid for the oysters uh, would would, uh, would not match. Uh, next, we have a, a question from Craig Maloney. Well-stocked bar, competent bartender, what do you order? Uh, Well-stocked bar, competent bartender. I mean, Robin's go-to of the old-fashioned is a terrific idea. Uh, and if you are in a bourboning mood but uh, don't want to go all the way to the top shelf and just uh, revel in the in the pure bourbonosity, I think an old-fashioned is strong with a well-stocked bar and a competent bartender. Another thing that you could do, uh, there is a, um, you know, frankly, it, it, is it summer? Mojitos. That is a great, it, it's a absolutely basic, it's the pumpkin spice latte of drinks in many ways, but by God is it refreshing in the summer. And the well-stocked bar just has to have fresh mint, which many of them do not. Yeah, you, you've already given my answer, of course, in the prelude. If you really want to test the skill of a bartender, especially if they're not in Canada, ask them to make a bloody Caesar. Or, sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, bloody, a bloody Caesar, Caesar right, yeah. uh, which is, of course, the Bloody Mary, which is made uh, better with the addition of clam juice, or, or as or as we do it in Canada, uh, clamato juice, which is a thing that you can buy in any convenience store, uh, clam flavored tomato juice, in order to make bloody Caesars. Canada, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. bulwark of the Western Alliance. <laughs> as our final question, uh, uh, John Lemmick asks, which historical figure would you choose to fight a duel for your honor? Uh, for my honor, uh, with swords, I would say probably um, uh, Musashi. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's he's right up there. His notion of my honor might be weird, but he's down, all about honor and he's all about killing people with swords, right. which is the equation that you want there, right? Right. Um, I, I would, uh, if I couldn't get him, because right. he's busy being pulled out of the time stream fighting duels for all sorts of people, People's not honor. all of whom are honorable because that's not how you use the time and stream. And it's not how you make a Japanese right. movie. Right. So I would use his you know, historical figure, T-1000. Right, yeah. Um, also very historically uh, valuable. Right. First of all, you're plucking him from the future. Yeah. Uh, he's very determined. He's very goal-oriented. Uh, and uh, he comes with his own sword. Yep. Uh, Doc Holliday, also an excellent choice. Oh, yes. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, you just hope he doesn't give himself away with it. If it's a gunfight. Right. Well, that's, yeah, that's right. The other, and the as long point. as you're not, you know, defending your honor against tuberculosis, you should be all right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and on that note, stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsor. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new design. Cthulhu is woke. Get it for the holidays. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will be interrupted by Chris Birch. <laughs> and talk about well, stuff. Stop. <laughs>